sacrifices. You've got to make sacrifices for your team. To answer your question. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Inside Position with me, Tom Halpin. Today's guest is Alliance Black Belt Jonathan Thomas, and he's regarded by many as one of the best jiu-jitsu coaches in the world, so it was great to have a chance to sit down and chat to him about his thought processes around learning, competing, and improving on the mats. It's clear he has a very analytical mind, so this was a very interesting podcast, and there's a lot of great takeaways, so I hope everyone enjoys it. As usual, if you do enjoy the podcast, make sure you share it with your friends, and don't forget to subscribe for more if you haven't already. So here we go with another episode of Inside Position with Jonathan Thomas. Hey John, thanks for coming on the show. No problem, happy to be here. I wanted to start off asking you about your early days winning worlds at blue and purple belt and what your goals were back then. Because thinking of myself, it took me a long time to aspire to the world level. I wasn't like a blue belt or a purple belt thinking, oh, I want to be black belt world champion. But I'm just thinking, what did those early successes do for your confidence for the future and what kind of goals did you have when you were starting off like that the goals of like winning major tournaments and stuff that came later after i kept winning tournaments right so i didn't start with that i think i just started with like an obsession of the craft so before i even started at a gym i got like ufc tapes and i'd be in my basement like rewinding hoist gracie armbar someone and like teaching it to myself and then you know i trained also traditional judo at a gym in st louis missouri and, you know, I got experience practicing the stuff on the mat there, learned some basic judo stuff, eventually found a Brazilian jiu-jitsu gym and started training there at Rodrigo Vagis in St. Louis, Missouri. But I had already developed that kind of um, self-reliant model of teaching myself and being obsessed with details. When I went into my first tournament, they kind of pushed me into competing at my gym. I thought I was going to get killed because I just didn't have any confidence. But I, you know, I just spent all day obsessed with the craft and like, how do you do this? How do you do that? You know, so the reality is that the skill eventually shines through if you do have deep knowledge and you, you spar a lot, the, the skill shines through. So I won my first tournament and then I was like, oh, that must be a fluke. And then I did my next tournament. I won that one. I won, you know, I kept winning. And then eventually I started to gain confidence because I kept winning. And then I won the Pan Ams and Worlds at Purple Belt training at Alliance. I closed out with my teammate, Michelle Lange. And then I would always just try to find a way to monetize, to, to keep it going and stuff. And then I suffered a really bad back injury in 2012. And that kind of sidelined me from competition for a bit. Finally came back in. And since then, it's just been this kind of, uh, it's kind of why I started the YouTube thing, this like constantly trying to get back into competition. I've had periods where I got back in and then I get injured again. So that's kind of why I started the YouTube channel and the Instagram is because I wanted to find a way to stay relevant and show that I have a lot to offer as a coach while trying to be able to still compete because, it, you know, unfortunately, especially if you don't use performance enhancers, it is very hard to predict how your body's going to function, you know? So you, you just do the best you can and try to find a way to make a living doing what you love. Yeah, I almost feel bad for some of the guys who are using, well, some of the guys, nearly everyone who's using performance enhancers because they miss out on one of the most fun parts of training is like trying to stay as close to the limit as I can where I'm training as much as possible, but my body's still building itself up instead of breaking it down. How did that come about? You going to Alliance, was it an affiliate or did you did you think, oh, that style would suit me? No, I was a big fan of Cobrinha at the time. So, you know, I, this is back before there was a YouTube, you know, I would just get like the, uh, Moonshiles on DVD or whatever, you know, and I, I watched uh, Cobrinha and, you know, he was winning everything and like, it was uh, awesome jujitsu. So then I found out he was teaching in Atlanta and then I decided, oh, you know, well, I have a, like a year until I start my job. So 
I'll, I'll go there and train. So I moved there to train with him. And then, uh, you know, I developed a lot of friends and contacts there, got a lot of exposure, ended up training with Lucas Lepree for a long time as well. From there, ended up moving to Sweden when I was teaching a seminar. I got an offer to teach full time here. And I have like, you know, very particular ways I like to train and stuff. And I felt like a lot of main gyms tried to control my training too much. So I didn't feel like that was a conducive environment for me. So, you know, I felt like going this route allowed me to be more independent, you know, and I think there's pros and cons of that. I think I definitely needed that, especially at that time to have that independence. I think in reflection, like I should have in my developing days, tried to capitalize more off of others knowledge because you just save so much time by exchanging with other people because everyone has like, especially at the top level, everyone has such unique knowledge. Like there's things that like, Espen does in the bolo that only Espen does. And there's things I do in double sleeve that only I do. And like when you exchange with everyone, you can speed up that learning process. Um, so I think you have to have that balance of, you know, being open to learning from others, but then also not being reliant on others and being self-independent to teach yourself as well. The worst thing I think is when you're wasting time training. I was never someone who was training four times a day, you know, every day of the week. So I'd need to maximize each session like as much as possible. When did you realize about that independence? Yeah, I, I think pretty early on, like I, I was always, you know, even before I started jujitsu, I was doing like self-training at my house, right? So I think I always did that. Uh, and then after being in Alliance Atlanta and getting the experience to train with some of the best guys in the world, really realizing how much was still just the main things I made were breakthroughs that I made myself, watching competitors, taking notes and reflecting. Um, so that was a big thing. Going down that route, I feel like more recently, I've really come back uh, to my roots on that where, well, not so much to my roots, but really identifying, I feel like what made me improve so much at that stage is like, I think you have to have periods of deep work. And I think that people like, even if you're doing specific training or whatever you do, you have to have periods of time where you sit there with like one person and you work on something very deeply, right? A lot of times if you're in class, even if you're like, oh, I'm going to work positions with my friend, you'll do that in class, but people will talk to you. People will come up like, oh, hey, what about this? You know, and then like people want to engage and socialize. And that's great. I love socializing. I, I'm super fun when I want to be social in the room. But when I switch into like deep work mode, I'm getting my enjoyment from going deep on the craft. And like, I, I cannot like have conversation and be fun. Like, I'm like, I'm just, I can talk with my partner about the position we're working, but I go really deep on that. And I feel like if you don't have times like that set aside for your training, uh, you know, if you're a serious competitor every day, or if you're not at least once or twice a week where you have like one partner or, or like three people total, where you guys sit there and go really deep on a position and specific train and drill and reflect and discuss, like you have to have periods like that, I feel. That's one of the things that I probably accidentally did throughout the years, just having limited training partners. So it would be like one main training partner and then two other good training partners. But then as you were saying, you get that deep work in because every single day you're seeing the same people there. They know what you're going to do from yesterday and they block it. And then the next day you have to overcome it. And then the next day they block that. And then over the course of a few years, you get a lot of depth, I find, in like the different positions that you're doing. And that helped me a lot competing and stuff. People wouldn't be ready for the amount of counters to their counters that I would have in certain areas. One interesting thing with that that can get really uh, difficult is like I've noticed is when you go so deep on a position because you have the same partner, they start developing like really out there counters 
that no one else <laughs> yeah. would do because they're so That's deep the on that sub game that you're doing that it becomes uh, absurd. You've probably experienced that as well. Yeah, I feel like you got to round it out with like the broad rolling and then like deep work, you know. Oh, big time. Like one of the most recent things, I spent a few months working on body lock passing every day, like all different variations. But one of my friends I train with the whole time, another black belt, his John Wayne sweep is better than John Wayne himself. And he just yeah. puts his whole body into it, full blast. And he's a bit bigger and stronger than me as well. So I'd say I spend a month, maybe six weeks every day, like stressing out. I'd be nearly crying sometimes after getting John Wayne swept, like when I had a fully finished body lock pass. Finally figured out how to counter it and beat it. But then I'm thinking it's kind of very niche. And I'm, I feel bad that I spent almost two months trying to figure out such a little niche thing. I had a student like that. My student, Tony, was so good at stopping like the low style knee cut from De La Hiva. And like, you know, like he just developed this hyper niche ability at fighting that specific pass. And I could go roll with the other world class people and hit it. And then I would go with Tony and it's like basically impossible. And we just went so mega deep on that position. I ended up getting like a, an adductor string because I kept trying to do it so many times. But like, I mean, I feel like there is a, uh, you know, you need to work hard, but then you also need to have a lot of reflection, right? Because like, I think, you know, things like that, it is very important that you have that ability to kind of zoom out and go, okay, is this worth the effort, right? Like, as you said, you have a finite amount of training time. So say you, your limit's like 20 hours a week, hypothetically, right? Depending on the intensity level you're training, right? Th then you have to go, okay, well, is it important that I spend like 20 hours to solve this issue? You know, is this the thing that's going to make and break me? Because like, if you're like a white belt, it might just be, well, dude, your guard retention is shit, right? So it's like, that's probably more where you're going to get the better bang for your buck. And also, I think like there's things, I think this is more of a higher level uh, issue for like people who are more experienced. If you're a white belt, there's so much to work on, right? But like when you're a higher level, I feel like most of our time should probably be spent in innovating new things. So like if you're not that great at like the bolo and crab ride and it's like a newer thing to you, like trying to start from square one on that, it doesn't make any sense. It's like it's better that you seek out an expert. You were mentioning that you went train in Alliance for starting like normal job and stuff. Did you actually end up going doing the normal job or did you just stick it out at Alliance the whole time? I worked yeah. in Washington, D.C. for a bit doing like uh, satellite work intelligence for the government. I did that for like a year. Nice. It was a cool job, uh, but I just ended up uh, not wanting to work every day. And I love jujitsu and I was like doing really good in competition at it. So it just kind of became this thing where it's like, I have a chance to do this. Just go for it. I'm probably going to regret it. So, yeah, that's what I did. It's went all in and really happy I did it. And was it weird going from actually making real money to then not really making jujitsu money? For sure. But I, I think that, you know, th something I've consistently heard like entrepreneurs talk about, and it's 100% true. It's like, you know, if you could just lower your standard of living expectation, you experience freedom really fast, right? So like, if you have the expectation that like, you need to eat out all the time, you need to have a nice apartment and all of these like super things, well, then like, you have to have a job now to have that, right? But you know, just like the Daisy Fresh guys, like if you can be happy with living on a mat on a mattress, you know, yeah. you can have your freedom right now, right? Now, everyone has a different level, like, I probably wouldn't want to live on the mat for four years, if I'm being honest. Like, I'd yeah. probably just get a shitty apartment and then, like, hustle some privates or something, you know. Mm. But we all have a standard, right? But I know I didn't need the, the fanciest life. So I just took a job working at the front desk at Alliance Atlanta. It allowed me to have access to jujitsu all the time and be in a good mm. spot. 
it was like, that's enough. And I was so happy just training jujitsu every day with no money and like, and you develop a skill, you know, and then once you get high enough at a skill and then you have enough people who know you are and you can produce something people like, you can monetize and then you have a happy life. You know, I think that's, I think people want success too quick is always, yeah. people always want get rich quick schemes. And that's, that's the problem. Is that what happened with Sweden? It just popped up and you were like, fuck it, let's do it. Yeah. I mean, I think that decision was largely, uh, I mean, it was, it was both. It was, I was in Atlanta. I wasn't really making ser- much good money there. And like the, the training situation, it kind of changed a bit there for me and mm. stuff. And then also at the time I had a girlfriend who was French so when I got an offer to teach in Sweden full-time, it was like, okay, now I have a full-time job that pays decent. I do jujitsu, uh, you know, and I think at the time it gave me some like more credibility probably with my like peers and my parents, you know, oh, what are you doing? You know, it's like, okay, well, you know, he's got, a, a, you know, he's working in Sweden and it just feels more official. Right. And then I was there teaching at the, that gym for like four years. And then uh, without going in too much depth, they kind of like uh, made mistakes with my work permit. Uh, and then I was going to, uh, I just started to have all sorts of issues with them. So then I started the YouTube channel because I was like, I want to have more autonomy over my own life, right? Then after I started the YouTube channel, it started building like a, a large online following and that started getting me seminars, allowed me to sell instructionals. And then I started building, you know, my life off that. Uh, I got away from that other gym and then everything worked out and now I'm in the placement. I actually remember seeing, the, I don't know if they were the first few videos you put out, but the first few most popular ones anyway about the guard retention and some of the escapes. Mm. And I still, to this day, use it. When you started the YouTube channel, you obviously wanted it to be a bit unique and stuff. What was the thought process about what to put out? To be honest, like I feel very lucky. My my friend Chris uh, is like a really good business guy in the US and he had been telling me for a long time I should start a YouTube channel because there's this kind of thing in jiu-jitsu uh, where it's like, especially before social media became big, where it's almost like you could be one of the best in the world at this sport. And then it's like, if you're not number one, you're nothing. You know, it's like no one, know, you know, especially before social media, right? So it was just like, I was like, dude, this is crazy. It's like any other craft, like you're like one of the best chefs in the world. You're like super successful, right? Yeah. Maybe you're not Gordon Ramsay famous, but like you're really successful. You're one of the best. Whereas jujitsu, it's like if you're the best, it's like you're Marcelo Garcia or whatever. You know, I mean, well, he's like a five-time champion, but yeah. you know, you're you're like one of the best. And then if you're not, then you have like nothing, right? So, yeah. you know, he was like, man, you should start a YouTube channel and build a following. I was like, okay. You know, it made sense. So then I was like, you know, and I had spent so much. I, I feel like I go so deep when I go into positions and I break them down. I get very analytical and I organize. I have a I have mastery. I have a very structured mind. So, I, you know, I have all this like depth of knowledge and stuff. I just didn't have a way to show it. And then I was dealing with the injuries and it was hard to get back to competition. So I was like, okay, well, I'll just start showing stuff online and maybe that'll work. And like, you know, I posted my first YouTube video and then my uh, friend of my friend actually posted it on Reddit and it just blew up, right? Yeah. And that was my first video I ever posted, right? It blew up on Reddit. I think like in the first day, I got like a thousand subscribers or something, right? Yeah. From Reddit. And then I kept doing more and then they just kept all hitting in the beginning. And then that just started to give me the comments, oh, you can do this. And then I did that for like a, a month or two. And then all of a sudden I was getting uh, offers to do seminars and it just completely transformed my life. Uh, and then, you know, and then since then, obviously I've upped the production quality and my thoughts on how to do it, my view of the business and everything. So I've evolved a lot, but you know, I do feel like there was a lot of luck and I just didn't, you know, I don't know. I was just kind of like obsessed with jujitsu, but I didn't really think deeply about how am I going to monetize this without opening a gym. Right. 
And then that just took off. And then obviously since then, I put tons of effort into it. But I feel like I did that right at the tail end of when that was like easier to do, right? I mean, you could still do it, of course. But I feel like at that time, there wasn't that much like YouTube instruction or Instagram instruction of like a higher quality, at least. You know, now there's a lot of people trying to get in and do that. And of course, you still can if you have really high quality stuff. Uh, But it's like, I feel like... um, you know, I feel like I was just right spot, right time. And it just came together. And obviously I had spent 20 years, you know, obsessed with the craft. Uh, I think that helped, you know, most importantly, because I actually have knowledge of the craft. Um, I think the other big thing too, is that I don't chase views, you know, like it's like, I try, I always try to make videos that I think deeply matter to make people get better. Because of course you can make a video in a format that might get tons of views. Like if I did like, you know, for example, if I do like a reaction video to a breakdown or to like a, yeah. you know, a BGJ Blue Belt gets a newest street fight, right? Like that, <laughs> if I make that title and then I run it, like, I might be able to get it to hit like 200,000 views or something possibly. Mm-hmm. But then it's like, who's my audience, right? So my audience yeah. to me is always deeply analytical people who really want to get better at jujitsu. And I just trust in the process that if I make, you know, if you make a video and it's really good, the, the analytics can account for how long people watch it and everything like that. But the analytics can't calculate like, okay, after watching the video two months down the line, is this person better on the mat? Yeah. And if they are better on the mat two months, like you said, like you saw my video like five years ago and you still use that or whatever, yeah. or maybe three years ago, uh, you know, you still use it. Like that is a meaningful, deep impact that analytics can't calculate. That's true. And I don't know, but you've probably told other people about those videos because oh, of that. Right. So I just try to trust in the process that if you produce a high quality thing that really matters, even if in the short run, it doesn't blow up and stuff, you just be patient and keep giving good value and it it will eventually shine through, you know? Yeah. Sometimes I feel like, oh, if I haven't won ADCC, why would anyone bother listening to me when they could listen to JT Torres or this other fella? Even if I think technically I have a great level, a lot of things to show, especially with like how to learn, how to learn quickly coming from maybe an area with a bit less jujitsu. But that's one thing that I always find makes me feel a bit odd putting myself out there too much. I think that's something that like I've had those thoughts before too, of course, you know, and I mean, I've won like worlds and stuff. It's like, I'm obviously not a fraud, but like I haven't competed as much recently, you know, mainly because of injuries and trying to come back from that, you know, and then there's also the, if you're talking about purely competition, there's the element of like, you know, steroid use and stuff. Like, Mm. are you willing to do that? Because if you're not, you are going to, it is going to be harder to beat someone at a world-class level who's on a lot of steroids. Not to say it's impossible. It's not, you can totally do it. I believe you can. But like, you know, you may not, you know, there's a bit of chance in how far you end up making it in competition. So, but if, if you, if you truly believe that you do have really great depth of knowledge in the field, mm. and you know that because you have trained with a lot of world-class guys and you're doing the right things to put yourself in the situations, you know, where you're rolling with like, the, you know, world, and if it's Nogi, you're like going to visit Austin and training at B team and you're getting exposure to these people and you see your performance of these people and you know what you're doing really works. You just haven't had the competition result. Then you deeply know that you are providing value. That's going to help yeah. people and people will get better. And some of my, my business friend, Chris told me, it was like, okay, John, like, first off, you know, most people are white, blue, purple in this sport. And like, they'll, most people will never even be a black belt. Uh, so like, 
like we're because we're such serious competitor minded people. We're like, if I'm not number one, I'm nothing. Like <laughs> yeah. we have that kind of mindset. Right. But most people like you're still like uh, an extra dimensional being like, you know, yeah, you're so yeah. good. Like they're, they could just, you know, so like, can you provide a piece of information that would make someone better at jujitsu? A hundred percent. You could, yeah. you can provide information that would make me better. You can provide information that would make Gordon Ryan better. I'm sure mm-hmm. we all have some unique knowledge, right? So then the question just becomes like, okay, uh, you know, can it, so you, you know that you have some knowledge that would help people. Okay. Well, people make successful businesses out of teaching Kung Fu and that doesn't even work. Right <laughs> now, of course, Okay, there's types of kung fu like shan, uh, san shao, and so I'm not saying all kung fu doesn't work. Okay, but there's a lot of BS martial arts shit out there yeah. that does not work at all, and people develop successful businesses around teaching touchless knockouts. Okay, so mm. that's really messed up. But in a certain way, it's kind of motivating to me as or you uh, as someone who actually does have knowledge that can help people in this sport. Because if you're good at marketing and doing the business, you can get your shit in front of people and and show them that it works. So if you understand that people can build a business with that, uh, then all you have to do is take the things that you know that will help people and find a way to get it in front of enough people to convince them to buy it. And you can make a good living with this. You don't have to be like that. And another person we we should really all thank in that is John Danaher. You know, John Danaher really did demonstrate that you can be a world-class coach and have world-class knowledge and not currently be competing. I don't think he ever competed. Right. But he's obviously got that. So I think that kind of image that like you have to have already won the ADCC title or you are nothing is not like real. I feel like people can understand that that's not always true now, you know, and and for sure you can thank Dan or her for that. I always felt that as well, because in other sports, you don't see the coach getting stuck in (laughs) like having a kick about with Ronaldo and the lads trying to prove that he's still. Yeah, for sure. But from studying maths and stuff as well, was there anything I know like people like to compare maybe maths or chess and jiu-jitsu and all these things are a bit cliched, but I wonder, was there anything in terms of thought processes or breaking things down that actually did help your jiu-jitsu? Uh, not the math itself. It's not like I'm doing yeah, calculations. Maybe the right? concentration but, but and practice. It, it, yeah. Exactly. It's deep work, right? Yeah. Like there's a lot of people like memorization, right? They like to just, okay, when was the war of 1812? It was 1812. You know, you just memorize things, right? Um, but math isn't like memorization, right? You need to under, you need to deeply understand these principles, these rules, right? And then you get a new problem and then you have to learn to apply what you deeply understand to resolve that issue. And you have to get the correct answer. That's a beautiful thing with math, right? It's one of the few fields you know, that you can truly like, like if you write a research paper in English or something, you know, it's, there's so much subjectivity, like you can write well, but like, you go, oh, this is better. It's like, who knows? And there's so much interpretation, something like math, like you can 100% believe it. Like I'm right. I'm totally right. I have all the confidence. And then like, you look at the answer. No, you are wrong. Right. It's like, shit. Now you have, that's like, kind of like, there's a hard check of reality. And I feel like jujitsu is that way. Right. Like, when you fight, you can think that you're really fucking good and you can think that like you're doing it, the technique works and you, you know, everyone has that experience where they learn the technique, they drill it a million times and they're so excited. They learn this cool new technique and then you try it on a white belt in class and it doesn't work. Right. It's like world does not care that you think you know it. You don't know it. Right. And I think that ability to sit with frustration and difficulty and go deep and troubleshoot shit until you figure out why it will not work is for me and my style a core fundamental. I feel like there's certain people like that. I feel like, like, uh, you know, I'm certainly of that type. 
Uh, Mikey is for sure way more of like an analytical type. I think Gordon and Danaher are way more of like an analytical type. But then you got guys that like are like Leandro Lowe. Uh, I mean, like Tommy is obviously very uh, smart and analytical as well, but also he's a very intuitive fighter. Like he's just really good at feeling things out. And I think you need both of those things, right? Guy like, but some people don't have high intuition on everything. And when you don't have high intuition on stuff, then, you know, if you don't have the intuition, you don't. So then you have to try to go deep to solve it. So you can have all the theory in the world about something, but then you need to be able to apply it as well. And it's always a little bit different as well when you're applying it in the different areas. Yeah, for sure. Is there any way you found that can help people improve, like to be a better learner or something? Because this is something I've been trying to figure out with coaching, partly in a selfish way, because I want my training partners to be as good as possible, as quick as possible. So trying to play with different ideas of make people quicker and better learners. It is very hard because I feel like people learn differently and people also struggle with different things. Like, uh, you know, this is something that was very hard for me for a long time when coaching is like, I'm so organized and analytical. I can like, you know, especially with positions I know, I can really break them down and troubleshoot exactly what the person's doing wrong most of the time, right? Some people, their issue is not that they don't have the answer. Like you'll give them the answer and then someone will do something, like their opponent will do something else and they'll have a problem with that. And like, it's just like, they're always one step behind. And then like, like, and then like they'll do what you said and then the guy changes just a little bit. And then it's like, oh, well, in that situation, you need to do this. And they, they just need the answer for everything, you know? Some people, like, I need to teach them how to, like, reflect on what went wrong. How do you troubleshoot that? And I need to help them with that. Other people, it's like the opposite. They're so analytical that I need to be like, dude, you got to stop fucking thinking and move. And, like, sometimes when I'm coaching people like that, they, I see their brain, like, like computing. Like, they're, they're in the middle of a sparring match, and they, and they switch to, like, computing. And I have to be like, fucking go! You know, just move, move, move. Like that. you have yeah. to do that because then they're yeah. like, Ugh, and then they just start doing something. And like, I think I the analogy I always use to people, it's like, you know, you can't jump in slow motion. For jumping to work, you there's a certain effort level that is required for you to achieve like exit velocity to like go up. Like you can't do it slowly. You you know. So like with technique, the problem is that when someone's trying to be technical, like. We always think of this as like the technical sport, right? So then like guys come in and they try to be very studious about it and they're like analytical and they study and they reflect and then they go into rolling and that same aspect of them, that reflective ability screws them over in the match because they're trying to use it in the match. When you're in the match, you need to just fucking go. You just got to blah, 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 blah. You got to move. And then if you consume a lot of content, you you study a lot, you drill a lot and you play with the positions, you have to trust that when you're in the match, that if you just go fast, that the likelihood that you will make good choices will go up the more you study and stuff, right? So you have to just like risk making really shitty moves at full. It's better that you make a shitty move at full effort than to do the correct move with zero effort or low effort, right? Because at least when you do the shitty move at full effort, you will fail. And then you'll go, that didn't work. Next time I'll adjust. And you're actually taking shots. But you have to try it at 100% to take those shots. If you're not trying it at 100%, you don't even know if what you did would have actually worked because you didn't try it hard enough. Thinking too much, it's like you're using your conscious mind instead of your subconscious. You can only think about one thing at a time with that. you know. So the training for me is usually to try and put what I know in the conscious into the subconscious Bingo. so I can do it yeah. like a thousand times faster. I remember the Mendez brothers actually used to have a lot of drills with 
speed drills, switching the sides, and then intermittently your partner would put in different little reactions. And the goal was to think quick, was to not pause. It didn't matter if you did it necessarily like right or wrong. It was more about being as smooth as you can and never pausing. And I remember those helped me a lot when I was like purple brown belt because it just got me like in the go, go, go kind of mindset. Yeah, I think that's uh, essential. You know, I think that's something I took for granted in people or because I always had that, you know, like day one, I would just move. But I just took that for granted that others had that. And I, I you know, it, it is something you have to focus on. I think the other big thing I always focus on with students is like teach because my gym, I, I don't like I'm not as much of a. I wouldn't say I'm like in this position at my gym where I'm like, I'm the head coach and I'm running this team, right? I heavily emphasize on the guy's self-independence. They need to teach themselves, right? I'm here. I'll teach two night, two night classes a week to help out with the guys. And then in the morning session, I'm always there and I often give a lot of advice, but, but it's very self-guided learning. So my, so it, when you do that, I feel like generally people won't become as good as someone who's running the classes like a drill sergeant, right? Like if I'm like, we're starting in double sleep, this is the system, we spot, you know. But if you train the guys how to think right, then I think they have potential to become great. So it's like you can have kind of a general aggregate neutral or you have the opportunity to become great, right? And I think the opportunity to become great for that to exist, you know, I, I've reflected on a lot of this more recently is it's my job then not necessarily to show them the technique, but to show them how to think like, and I think that's one of the things I found some of the guys struggle with most is I'm like, okay, look, you want to go win the Europeans, right? And especially if you're dealing with like a kind of a normal gym, right? Like in our morning session, we might have 10 or 15 people. And like one person may just be like recreationally training for fun. And someone else is like, I want to win the Europeans and make this my career. And someone else is just like a meathead just wants to go hard. Right. And like, you have all these different people in the room. And if I come in with like, today is Shark Tank, like one guy did Shark Tank last night and is exhausted. Another guy's got an injury. One guy wants to go hard and then, or you have a mismatch. And so, it's so hard to create this perfect format that's going to solve it for everyone. So instead I tell the guys, look, there's 15 of you here. You all have different skills and assets and goals and knowledge. Use each other to accomplish what you need. So then you have to set your own goals. Like if you're like, okay, I want to go win the worlds. Okay, well, you should probably have some pretty damn good cardio and be used to going really hard when you need to. So if you come in, you work technique for a bit if you want to do that first, and then grab the toughest guys in the room at the end of class and go, I'm going to do eight minutes with you, and then eight minutes with you, and then eight minutes with you. I'm going to push myself as hard as I fucking can. Right. But someone else, they may come in and they're injured and they just want to kind of work on, you know, their crab ride a little bit. OK, cool. Do that. Right. But if you're not getting the results you want, if you wanted to win the worlds and you didn't win the worlds, you know, of course, that's you know hard to completely control that. But if you're if you're not at the level that you think you could even have a chance, you know, by the time you set, then you need to go, OK, well, what am I doing wrong? Right. Am I am I not pushing hard enough? OK, I have great cardio. You know, am I not? technical enough. I got ankle locked. I don't know how to defend an ankle. Lock. Okay. Well, you need to work on that. You know, like who at the gym knows ankle locks well, can I have them start in an ankle lock on me and then learn to defend it? You know, like you have to teach these people that they have to figure out what their own personal goal is, be it weight loss, be it winning a world title, you know, be it beating Steve or whoever their gym nemesis is, make them learn that they have to reflect and solve that themselves. And my job is to help give them answers when I can to their specific issues or give them advice, but I can't hold their hand and teach them everything. There's so much online content available now. It's ridiculous for people like, of course, if you're a brand new beginner, you come in 
of course, there's a class for that, right? But if you've been training for two or three years, you're like a blue belt. Like if you want to learn double sleep, there's like all these instructionals on double sleep and free YouTube videos, right? So like when you come in for me to sit the whole class down and run through the entire double sleeve system, it just doesn't make sense because like half the class already did that. So I'm wasting their time. They mentally check out because they already learned it when that guy could just watch it for 10 minutes before class on a YouTube video for free and be ready for class. So I, I have way more of a hands-off mentality. Yeah, it's a bit old-fashioned, that kind of style now. I think it'll, you'll see it dying out a bit Hope more so. over the next few years. But I like the idea as well that I heard you talking about before about thinking of the different positions as little mini-games. Mm. I even know a lot of friends that they say, oh, when I end up in this position in rolling, uh, I have much better performance when I just think of it as like specific sparring from this position now and I'm trying to win this position and then we go move to another position. I'm trying to win that one. Yeah, well, I mean, objectively, there is no difference between specific sparring and a regular match once you're in the position, right? Like if you specific spar from 50-50 or I'm in a regular match and I end up in 50-50, at that point, it's the exact same thing. Your brain has cannot process that there's a difference, right? It's like you're just sparring from 50-50, right? So really, all a regular match is, is a collection of multiple minigames. And if you get good at enough of those minigames and the right minigames, then you're, you're going to be good at a match, right? The ones that I think really t bleed and tie everything together is the grip fighting game. That's where, because a lot of people that go into jiu-jitsu, it's just this massive chaos. And they're like, well, how the hell do I get good at this thing? And there's no organization or structure to it. So it's like, the, to me, I take the reverse engineering model, right? Okay. Let's start with a triangle choke, They're like a beginner. Here's how, you know, and you specific spar from a triangle, learn to do that. You specific spar from an arm bar, learn to do that. Specific spar from the back, learn to finish. Specific spar from side control, from mount. And like you have these finishing positions, you would deeply understand, you have experience there, right? Side control escape and all the, you get good at those skill sets, right? And then you go, okay, well now what are some open guards I can control with? Okay, double sleeve, collar sleeve, collar ankle, sleeve ankle, cross sleeve ankle. There's only so many, right? And you start to get competent in those. And then as you have competency in these different things, it's kind of like school. There's like prerequisites, right? If you don't know how to, to finish a triangle choke at all, right? Uh, like double, you can't really play double sleeve effectively because there's things the guy on top can do that you could triangle him, but because you don't know a triangle, you can't do that. So you can't run that system effectively, right? So it's almost like there's prerequisites for these systems, right? So to me, the last tier is grip fighting because grip fighting is all built around what grips you know. So I can be like, okay, if he leads with his left uh, leg and his left hand's forward, you can grab that sleeve and you could fall back to a lasso or a far side collar sleeve, right? But then it's like, okay, but if you don't know how to play a lasso, that doesn't mean anything to you. So I can't teach you grip fighting if you don't have certain preconditions or I can, but it's somewhat limited, right? Like if you say, okay, I only know how to play double sleeve and collar sleeve. It's the only things I know. Okay. Well, if the guy approaches you with his hands back and is standing tall, then you can't really grab anything. <laughs> so then it's good that you know how to build off of a single leg grip or like a De La Hiva grip or a reverse De La Hiva grip. And then from that you can attack and then they may give you a sleeve and then that could transition into a collar sleeve game. Right. So I think it's best to like kind of do that reverse engineering model where you work back. The other idea that I heard you talk about before that was kind of counterintuitive at first, but actually made a lot of sense to me then was I think you were talking about strength training and flexibility training. It was kind of the opposite to what you would hear from other people like Marcelo Garcia and other people would say, oh, just only do jiu-jitsu all the time and then you'll get your strength and your flexibility from that. But you were talking about how sometimes it's actually better off to just put a few months into like flexibility or strength and then you'll have more moves available to you afterwards. 
like literally no one in any like, like advanced sport would suggest that that's that you should not strength train someone who's already done like you know like say a decade of strength training comes into jiu-jitsu they probably don't need to do a ton of strength training they could just do a lot of jiu-jitsu and work on their mobility maybe right so it's going to be different for each individual right but if you're training jiu-jitsu and like you're like a skinny dude with like no muscles and no strength yeah you're just going to be like throwing yourself into these especially the older you get you're throwing yourself into these positions. You don't have like the muscle to support your joints. You're going to get injured a lot. You know, that's like probably why I, I got injured a lot. You know, it's like, I didn't do enough like deadlifts and squats and stuff to kind of prepare my back or at least do kettlebell swings or whatever. You want to be in like an upward trajectory with your body, right? Like I want to be training when I'm 40. Well, if you're just training high volume jujitsu all day and no strength, it is like a destructive act on your body, Right. Like jujitsu, I would say one of the biggest issues with jujitsu, it is not symmetrical, right? You people right leg lead, your opponents mostly right leg lead, right? Or you left leg lead all the time. And then you always play a certain guard on this side. You develop all over 10, 15 years, you develop all these insane imbalances in your body that are absolutely destructive for your low back, for your neck, your shoulder, your knee, right? So like, realistically you want like your conditioning your strength and mobility work to be like constantly building your body like a machine so that it's symmetrical it's well oiled it's strong and it functions well right like i think we all have had the experience of training with someone who used to train a lot and maybe they were out for a year and they come back but they're always like doing crossfit or or like triathlon shit or something and they come back and they're still tough as fuck right? Like we've all experienced that, right? That's because that person's in shape, right? So it's not like the only way to be in shape is jujitsu. But the difference is that if you're doing like kettlebell swings and you do all the, or like Turkish get-ups, you do these things properly, you're building symmetry in your body, right? So if you do like a year of that and no jujitsu and you do it well, you will be stronger and you're, you're correcting those imbalances, right? So I get into modes too, of course, where I'm not doing as much strength, and I just do high volume jujitsu. Like yesterday, I probably did like four or five hours worth of like barambolo and crab ride work because my back and hip finally felt a little bit better. And I didn't go hard, but I did more specific work. But, you know, I just went like a bunch and I did like two out, you know. So when I get into those modes, I may go way beyond, I may go way beyond overtraining because like it is overtraining for my body physically, but uh, mentally I can still make progress. I may go beyond the point that's actually physically functional, but I'm making so much gain that I'm like, okay with it. Right. And I'll do that sometimes. Right. But realistically, that's usually bad. Usually if I do that long enough, the consequence is injury or back injury, especially. Right. So like dialing back the jujitsu, finding a way to, uh, I think Connor said this, but upgrading your software without damaging your hardware. Right. Like you want to be in a place where you can like, basically watch video, do very light specific work or light drills so that you can still be like improving the mental map you have of jujitsu, but uh, still be not overtraining and allowing yourself to do enough strength and mobility work so that your, your body is better. So that one year from today, you are stronger, more flexible and less uh, pain in your body from injuries, right? Because if you're pain free and your body functions well, you can now train you know harder and better it's nice to feel good after training like leave training feel 
mobile, energized, everything instead of leaving training, getting out of the car and then straight into bed afterwards. Oh yeah, that's that. the worst. But from all the travels you did, are there any cultures that would be your favorite or maybe even just places? Yeah, for sure. It was training at Wolfing with Tommy and Espen. I think just think that it was the right uh, atmosphere for me because they're very like freedom oriented. So we would just come in, we have coffee, everyone jokes around and has a fun time. There's no structure for like the morning sessions, the, the comp training, no structure. We just have coffee, have a good time. Everyone just slowly gets on the mat and just starts working. You know, you, you work on whatever you want. And then people are like, hey, you want to roll? And they're like, you get some hard rounds, you get to do some specific rounds, you, whatever you want to do. No pressure no, on anything, you know? And I feel like when you have that kind of environment with the right people, you, you get great things, right? And I think they just had a good group of people with Espen, with Tommy, uh, and then uh, Vigard and Kenneth, the uh, other two guys there, they're really good. Uh, and now they have a bunch of young up-and-comers and just the vibe and culture in that atmosphere, uh, I just think for me personally is like the best place to be. So I had some of the best training I ever had when I was there. And then I got deported. Okay, so. that sounds interesting. Sounds like almost lab work. Oh, you got deported. <laughs> How was that? I'm always worried about that every time I go to America. Yeah, it was so, so ridiculous. I, I, I'm pretty sure they were wrong. I visited and I uh, have a, a legal work permit for Sweden. I'm now a permanent resident of Sweden, which means that I have the right to like go within the EU. You know, so I was there longer than three months. And then they, I guess they flagged me for that. Whenever I went in, I guess they scanned me. And they, you've been here longer than three months. I'm like, oh, well, I'm here. You know, I have a Swedish residence permit. Uh, and they're like, oh, well, you're a U.S. citizen. U.S. citizens can't stay longer than three months. I'm like, yeah, I get that. But I came in on a Swedish residence permit. But I think that they felt like once they tried to go after me, I think they kind of felt like just the bureaucracy was like, well, we got to do it. So they kept trying to go after it. And then, yeah, they ended up because of how it's set up there. They had they basically went after me with this ridiculous claim. They tried to ban me from the country. Uh, they paid for my own lawyer. Right. And then my lawyer was like, yeah, this is ridiculous. And then they dropped it. And they basically just said, OK, leave the country. And then you're welcome to come back whenever you want. But you like it was kind of like, I don't know, it'd be like you get into an argument with your brother about something and he just punched you. And then it's like your parents like, well, you're both wrong. The way they did it, too, <laughs> was so messed up. Like they they came at me and they were like, oh, you're um, you know, you can't be here if you're not working or doing something. I'm like, well, I'm like helping them with their their business. You know, they do like the online thing. I have a large following. I'm helping with the, I'm working with them for that. Right. So then, then they came back and said, you illegally worked in Norway, so we're going to ban you. I was like, so what they did was <laughs> they basically came in and told me that I was illegally, basically saying I couldn't be there because I'm not working. They kind of led me into that bureaucracy thing. Jiu-Jitsu lifestyle. Yeah. What do you have coming up in terms of maybe goals, teaching? Right now, I've just been, I, I told myself like about three or four months ago, my number one goal is to get my body to function well. So I'm not, not in pain and I can train well. Because like, it doesn't matter how good my technique is. If my body doesn't function right, that's the problem. So really, I spent the last like few months just 100% trying to get my body to work better. So now my back is out of pain. My groin is still a bit injured, but I'm probably going to give it another month month and a half of rehab and then i'm going to focus on trying to get back and do some competition stuff uh and then during that period i'm probably going to go train with espen 
maybe go on a trip with uh, Espen or someone to go train at Lucas Lepre's or whatever, and just try to get some training and to get my shape up and my intensity up to be prepared to go compete again. All right, well, best of luck with everything anyway, and thanks a million for jumping on. Big thanks to John for coming on the show. It was great to hear about how his journey has developed throughout the years. There was also some great takeaways about learning, training, and I really enjoyed hearing about some of the counterintuitive ideas and some of the ideas around strength and flexibility training as well. Before we go also, a quick reminder about my new Patreon site. Make sure you check that out. I'll leave a link in the description and I'm looking forward to helping everyone take their jiu-jitsu game to the next level. As usual, if you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to share with your friends and also subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes. Until the next one, Slánaga Spánacht.